Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... Firstly, we started off trying to reach out to people who are experiencing domestic and family violence by working with workers in that sector. So a lot of the work that the project started with and continues to do today is working with workers in the domestic and family violence sector. And what we're trying to do is save uh, survivors of domestic and family violence from having to jump around from service to service. A new project was launched yesterday to support culturally and linguistically diverse women with knowledge on tenancy rights when facing family violence. We have the details. Also, research shows that over 6 million Australians believe they will receive Christmas gifts they don't use or wear, leaving these unwanted gifts destined for landfill. What impact could weigh over the Christmas period have and what needs to change. And later in the show... We'd like to engage, be engaged with the government in strategies in how we can prevent disease, how we can work more closely with our medical colleagues, how we can educate the community and expand specific uh, safety net schemes for those who truly need care the most. The Senate has released its report on dental health care, recommending a number of changes, including a dental scheme for senior Australians. Could this be the beginning of access to quality dental care for all Aussies? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, community groups are outraged over a recent decision from the federal government's oil and gas regulator approving the seismic blasting at the Burrup Peninsula. Federal regulator NOPSEMA granted approvals late Friday last week, just two months after a federal court overturned its previous approval for lack of consultation. Over 30 environmental organisations, including Save Our Songlines, have joined an open letter calling on the federal government for action, including strengthening community rights in the NOPSEMA public consultation requirements. The letter shows concern on the industry's aggressive lobbying campaign and the regulations failing to protect ocean and marine life from fossil fuel projects. Traditional custodian and Marda Jurma woman Raylene Cooper from Save Our Songlines shares more on her perspective. Well, firstly, not to forget that NOPSEMA is a regulator, a government federal regulator. And so therefore, in saying what they stand for is to be able to consider all relevant information from relevant persons. And being a relevant person, my concerns were that Woodside previously had not consulted with me. And in saying that, the court did deem support what we thought was unfair. This is the reason why they were dismissed in the federal court hearing. However, Woodside have now um, been approved, obviously, uh, for the seismic testing and its drilling. Noxema, over the night of Friday evening of last week, I was notified about what had happened. I'm extremely disappointed with Noxema, but therefore, I just have to keep putting it out to everybody. They are a federal government regulated body. So have you contacted them for reasons and, and were you consulted at all? No, we were not consulted. We were not told that Woodside um, are going to start their seismic and drilling um, of the Friday night. We weren't told previously or beforehand. We were notified after the event. And what about in terms of environmental impact and also cultural impact? Um, you know, what are you concerned about there? Well, the environmental impact is phenomenal. 
we've got the song lines for the whales. We have our beautiful, majestic animals, marine life that are in their waters, in their homes that are going to be disrupted and displaced or die. Um, we also have, uh, you know, the environment to think about, you know, our, our food sources, the food that comes from our waters, um, the, the environment where we've got our land-based food processes, you know, bush medicines. And then we've got the humans that live in the area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're affected and impacted in all ways. Environmentally, this is no going back. It's irreversible damage is what's going to be done. And what do you want to see done differently by governments? Government need to come sit at the table with the First Nations people, the grassroots people. We're not talking about people who have maybe have university or academic degrees. We are talking about the grassroots people who hold knowledge, who hold footprints and who hold the stories and the songlines for their ngora. Pilbara Climate Network spokesperson Chris Jenkins says the community is disappointed with the approval of recent seismic blasting. Well, I mean, we heard of it at 5pm on a Friday afternoon. And prior to that, I don't think anyone who had their ear to the ground had really got a sense that this was in the pipeline. So it definitely came as a big shock. And I think we do have our misgivings about the fact that this happened so late on a Friday when most people are turning from work and, and paying less attention to, to public news. And the fact that this happened two months after a federal court ruled against this happening on the basis that you know they hadn't gone through due process of consultation with First Nations traditional owners up here. We just can't see how this has been done in good faith. Can you run me through some of your main concerns about the seismic blasting and the broader uh, Scarborough gas project and this is expected to be linked to? There are a whole range of uh, endangered animals that exist off the coast of the Pilbara. Some are migratory and some are not. So some of the more endangered animals have moved on from this time of year, but there still is the pygmy blue whales which live in the area. But there's the broader ecosystem, and seismic blasting is using sound cannons directed at the ocean floor, which creates one of the loudest noises human beings can make. And so the research in the impacts of this on animals is limited, but that isn't a reason then to go ahead with it. This approval follows Railing Cooper's legal challenge, which saw the federal court deem Woodside's previous approval invalid. What mm. do you think that this recent approval says? I honestly think it shows that Woodside is going through a tokenistic gesture. I don't feel like Railing's opposition to this project has gone away. And so I think this is a tick box exercise for Woodside. And I think for all the gesturing that you know fossil fuel companies do towards First Nations folks, I think at the end of the day, these are companies that are overwhelmingly concerned with maximizing their immediate profits at the expense of Aboriginal communities, the broader community, the environment, and even their own survivability. And this is what's obscene about it, is that the climate crisis that is really pending affects everybody. No one escapes it, regardless if you are a CEO of Woodside or you're the poorest member of the community. It is a sign of the madness of the, of the way that things are. Some people think it's a bit odd that in the midst of all this industry that there is a climate group that's getting active and I actually think that there is no contradiction here. I do believe that people living pretty much at the epicenter of this do have a responsibility to get active and it affects our local community. Like we're concerned as PCN of the quality of air in our local community because there isn't publicly accessible, updated, immediate sort of not monitoring of the air quality of our town. And that exists in many other parts of the Pilbara even. Pilbara Climate Network spokesperson Chris Jenkins speaking with The Wire. The Wire also contacted Nopsema for comment.
new project from Tenants Queensland was launched yesterday to support culturally and linguistically diverse women to know their tenancy rights when facing family violence. The project includes messages in six languages with information about tenancy and support in audio files, easily accessible for cold women living across the state. The Wires Eduardo Jordan attended the launch and spoke with Tenants Queensland to find out more. Penny Carr, Chief Executive Officer, Tenants Queensland. And I'm Rose Brown. I'm the Domestic and Family Violence Project Worker at Tenants Queensland. I suppose we recognise that a lot of people who are experiencing domestic violence are renting their homes. And over the last few years, the Queensland Government has made some changes to tenancy law around domestic violence that make it easier to leave a tenancy and not be responsible for break lease fees. You can change the locks without getting the permission of the landlord to protect yourself and you're not responsible for damages. They're some of the key changes and we have produced some little videos maybe a couple of years ago and then we recognised that we needed to get the messages out more widely particularly to people who don't speak English. And, of course, radio and 4EB is the best way of doing that, really. So we know that family violence is a very complex issue. How did you come up with the idea of getting messages in different languages about tenancy rights for this vulnerable group? I think that our progress to this point has been happening over a number of years. So firstly, we started off trying to reach out to people who are experiencing domestic and family violence by working with workers in that sector. So a lot of the work that the project started with and continues to do today is working with workers in the domestic and family violence sector. And what we're trying to do is save uh, survivors of domestic and family violence from having to jump around from service to service. So we're backing up those domestic and family violence workers with information and support because we know people who are experiencing domestic and family violence will have tenancy issues, whether they're in a rental property, a rented home, and they need to leave or they need to stay and get the perpetrator out, or whether they want to start a rental property. That's the sort of information they need to have right in, in a timely way. So we're t- working with workers to support their clients, and where, they ca- where it's too complicated, we'll work with those clients directly. But, of course, through our own uh, telephone lines, we also get people looking for, for, for information, support, advice on tenancy law because they're in a domestic and family violence situation. So that's where we sort of started, and then we started thinking about, well, are we reaching everyone we need to reach? So the project came up with some ideas about using some community service announcements in a video form, short and sharp, and then translating information into other languages and uh, now some radio messages. The project launched today with six languages. Mm -hmm. Are there plans to extend it to more languages at this point? That's so interesting that you asked that because it's only talking to people here today that were saying, asking that very question a Samoan woman who was down there saying, oh, it would be really useful to have it in Samoan language. And this project has been funded by the Office for Women and one of their team attended today. She seemed pretty enthusiastic about it. So I think what we might be doing is putting in another bid to expand the languages and to continue the collaboration with 4EB so that they can able to play them on the radio. How big is the issue of family violence and tenancy in Queensland? Could you give us a snapshot of how things are happening at the moment? I don't have any statistics with me, but we know that domestic and family violence happens everywhere. It happens across all 
walks of life. It happens over all socioeconomic groups and it certainly happens to people who rent their home or it's as a consequence of it happening, people need to rent a home. So what I can comment on is people who come to our service and there's a reasonable 4% of the people who come to our service have got an experience with domestic and family violence which has motivated their contact with us. So we think there's probably a lot more out there and that's why we're trying to reach out. We don't want to sit and wait for people to have to come to us. We want to sort of reach out into the community and show that there is help if people are experiencing uh, domestic and family violence. And what are some of the services Tenants Queensland is offering to culturally and linguistically diverse women regarding their tenancy while in a family violence situation? There is information on our website and we have one of those translating tools. So even if it's just accessing that information, hopefully the translating tool works well enough in their own language to be able to read what they might need. If you ring the 1300 number and you ask for an interpreter, we can arrange an interpreter. And then we can address your specific questions because every situation might be a little bit different, a little bit more complicated. Rose Brown from Tenants Queensland speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. The Senate has released its report on dental health care three months ahead of the anticipated release date. The report recommends including dental care in Medicare in stages and setting up a dental scheme for senior Australians. Advocates and organisations welcome the report and they expect to work with the federal government on its implementation. The wise Eduardo Jordan asked Federal President of the Australian Dental Association, Scott Davis, his thoughts about the report. Look, it's a very comprehensive report. They've really looked into the topic with with great diligence and they produced it almost three months ahead of schedule. So they're really to be commended for doing what they've done. So what are the main points the Australian Dental Association were advocating that the Senate is now recommending? Well, first and foremost, the first two items were collect quality data. We just don't have really good data to make decisions from. So I hope the Commonwealth Government takes that on board and every two years does really extensive seeking of, of, of what's happening in the community, what the disease burden is, what works, what doesn't, all those sorts of things. From a treatment perspective, we're, we're very happy that they're supportive of the seniors' dental benefit schedule and providing treatment to people in residential aged care. That's a, that's a major um, forward step. And we're very happy they've recognised there's a lack of dentists in regional and remote Australia. Speaking of our regional areas, how is the current situation in Australia with dental access, especially in these areas? Even in major centres, there's there's a bit of a shortage of dentists, but the more remote you get, the, the bigger the problem is. And that's true for most professional groups, whether it be doctors, lawyers or dentists. Um, there are a few factors which works against regional Australia in that uh, the partner needs to get a job, hopefully, um, access to further education, the, the cost of establishing a business, having a big enough patient pool to service to pay the bills. Um, and we think the government needs to come on board to help professionals make that step to move into regional Australia. 
So the report recommends to include dental care in Medicare, but in stages. Uh, could you please expand on this and why is this important? We need a safety net for those Australians who can't afford dental care themselves. And there are specific groups we've identified, such as I've mentioned, the, the seniors, um, Indigenous Australians, people with disabilities and special needs, but also people who just physically have low income and cannot afford care. At the moment, they're not being serviced adequately and the system isn't set up well enough to do that. Rather than Medicare, we really would encourage a form of government funding that allows the private sector in particular to be leveraged because we're spread across much more diverse areas in Australia to help these groups through funding directly to dental practitioners. And I believe as well it's a, a sustainable way of doing it because if you add, add everyone into uh, dental access would be very expensive, I'm, I'm assuming? It, it, it's unaffordable if you were looking at comprehensive care. At, at the very least, you'd be looking at 8 to $10 billion a year, but then there's years and years of pent-up demand. So I think a little like the NDIS, they'd be quite surprised at how much it would cost to do. And it probably isn't the role in oral health for the government to do that. We have to have strong preventive strategies that stops the disease in the first place rather than treats it. We have to get to people early and educate them on dietary and uh, oral hygiene habits so you just don't get holes in your teeth. You don't get gum disease in the first place. That's a preferable outcome. Excellent. Now, um, well, now we have the report. It's been released. What are the first steps you think the Albanese government needs to implement to have a better access to dental care in Australia after releasing this report? We really encourage them to start the Seniors Dental Benefit Scheme as soon as possible because we know from the Royal Commission into Aged Care, it's a problem. It, it, it's, uh, it's affecting people's health significantly. We'd like to engage, be engaged with the government in strategies in how we can prevent disease, how we can work more closely with our medical colleagues, how we can educate the community and expand specific uh, safety net schemes for those who truly need care the most. Ultimately, preventive care could be a more government-funded uh, solution to encourage people to participate, as many people as possible, But at the moment, we, we just have key groups which have very serious need that need to be addressed first. Federal President of the Australian Dental Association, Scott Davis, speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Gift-giving remains firmly entrenched in the tradition of the festive season. But according to recent research from the Australian Institute, more than 6 million Australians believe they will receive gifts they will not use or wear, leaving these unwanted gifts destined for landfill. I spoke with Nina Gabor, Director of the Waste and Circular Economy Program at the Australian Institute, to find out more on the impacts of Christmas waste and what the survey results reveal about Australian gift-giving. I think it was the fact that almost a billion dollars worth of unwanted gifts are going to go to waste this year. Was there anything else that stood out to you from those um, survey results? It was quite in-depth. Anything else that stood out to you? That almost half of Australians don't really want to receive Christmas presents. 
kind of like so why are we still continuing this tradition i know i know you know it has a lot of connotations for a lot of people but still you know i think it's it fact that most people actually don't want christmas presents that was shocking but also we did a bit of an estimate on how much waste is is kind of a projection on how much waste goes to waste every year in australia it's about 275,000 tons during christmas time and that does not include the gifts Okay, that's things like Christmas trees, wrapping paper, food, and we know that food um, is a big contributor, food waste is a big contributor to the climate crisis as well, right, because of emissions. It's really incredible how much is wasted just during that Christmas time, and it'll be interesting to, after this report and a lot of these conversations, to see if you know, a shift begins to happen. Speaking of shifts and attitude shifts, do you think that the survey revealed a shift in a shift in attitudes of Australians towards Christmas gift giving and wastage? Okay, so we did this survey back in 2019, and the figure was higher by about over 50, about $59 million higher than it is now. We did not look into why, you know, so one can easily say that attitudes are beginning to change. However, it could also because, be because of the, you know, cost of living crisis. People have less disposable income. Honestly, I can't say that there's any shift in culture at the moment, but now that this is becoming more of a conversation, hopefully there will be moving forward. What impact could those unwanted or unused gifts have or that Christmas wastage have on mm-hmm. the environment or sustainability? Oh, it's it's horrible. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of it is contributing to the climate crisis because most of it is just ending up in landfill. Even things, take for example, the good thing is that about 85% of Australians are, are reusing their Christmas trees, right? And that's good because they're reusing it. However, a two meter artificial tree has a carbon footprint of about 40 kilograms. An artificial tree is only used about four times before it's discarded. There's that issue. And then there's issue of plastics. A lot of plastics is used around Christmas time from decorations to little trinkets, even like, you know, tape that's used in wrapping paper. There's just a lot of plastic that's being used, which as we know, again, plastic comes from fossil fuels. You know, that's an issue for, you know, the climate crisis. So the environmental impact is so big that some environmentalists refer to Christmas as the greatest annual environmental disaster. And we're also in a cost of living crisis too. Mm-hmm. Can you shed any light on perhaps the like the economic impacts of gift wastage at this time? The cost of waste being $921 million, that's a lot of money that could be spent towards charities, you know, could be spent towards the cost of living crisis, the housing crisis, you know, homelessness, and so many other things instead of unwanted presents. With this report, we're trying to, you know, sort of softly advocating for people to, instead of buying material presents, think about giving things like charity donations as presents, even under the name of a loved one, or giving uh, gifting experiences rather than material things, or even gift cards. And I can see that your survey actually showed, while, you know, people aren't really, don't really like receiving gifts as much, Mm -hmm. it did show that 78% like to give gifts to others. So how can we adapt this tradition and what are some other ways that we can change consumer habit? I think we have to get over wanting to have that element of surprise and we've made shape the culture around, you know, buying something for someone and seeing the expression on their face when they open it, you know, the person has to pretend that they like it because you don't want to hurt your feelings. We got to get over that. Okay. It's time to Let's just be honest with our loved ones and say, I really do not want anything for Christmas or say this is specifically what I want for Christmas, right? We can do that and it's okay. 
And why is it becoming so much more important to be actively thinking about a circular economy when purchasing Mm -hmm. gifts for others? It's important for us to think about what happens to those gifts at the end of life, right? So as we're buying the gift, the person who's going to use it, it's important for us to think about how is it going to be disposed of? Because at the moment, less than, you know, one in two Australians, that's basically 46%, can consider how the gifts are going to be disposed of after the receiver is done with them. So as you're buying a gift, think about, okay, when this person uses this top or this t-shirt or this dress, what's going to happen to it at the end? Is it made of polyester where it's going to end up in landfill and not decompose? And, or is it something that, you know, is such good quality, made by a sustainable brand, can be re-gifted or resold. Nina Gabor, Director of the Waste and Circular Economy Program at the Australian Institute, speaking with The Wire. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between two SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide, in Tanzania, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.